Hey, everybody, Zakia here. This episode is about promising new vaccine science, but I also want to give you a heads up that it includes discussion of drug use and addiction. If you're not comfortable hearing about the dangers of drug addiction and overdose, please feel free to skip ahead to the six minute mark. I'm Zakia Watley, and this is Breakthrough, a podcast from Boston Children's about the ways researchers are pushing the boundaries of what's possible in children's health. Every episode, I talk to some of the world's top researchers about how their work is revolutionizing the future of pediatrics and what that means for children and their families. I also talk to parents and patients who've dealt with unexpected medical challenges. Sophisticated vaccination science is creating bold new horizons. In the future, it's possible that individual people will receive specific vaccines tailored to their unique health profile to fight any number of diseases and possibly even cancer. One area where precision vaccines could become a vital tool for public health is drug addiction. To tie these threads together, we will hear from someone with personal experience of overdosing on opioids. I would say I realized that my opiate use became a problem for me, honestly, the first time I overdosed. This is Patty. Patty is 18 years old. He has overdosed more than once on fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that's almost 100 times stronger than morphine. There's not really a guidebook on when you have a problem and when you don't. But, you know, when you almost die, that's a pretty big sign. Patty generously shared his story with me to help all of us have a better understanding of the profound challenges of fighting addiction and what's at stake in the development of groundbreaking vaccine technology. My first exposure to drugs was when I was four years old. I was with my dad and we were in the car. I saw him whip out a bag of Coke. And he he was like, oh, it's just sugar. And I was like, well, don't you usually put sugar in your coffee? And he's like, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm going to drink my coffee when I get inside the house. And so I didn't buy it. I didn't know what to believe. So I had a minor surgery, and I got prescribed opiates. That wasn't what got me hooked. What got me hooked was seeing my dad using it, and then from that point, seeing it as, like, an acceptable thing and like a a positive way of managing stress. So kind of that modeling behavior. The problem with stronger opiates and stronger stimulants as well is that it's not that they're bad, it's that they're great. They're too great for your own good. Your point of reference changes for like, what's the best day ever? If you hike Mount Everest and you're training for months and months versus you take a pill and feel the same way, which one's gonna be easier? You know, in the lead up to that overdose, it was a really difficult time. It was somewhat near the anniversary of my father's passing. When you lose someone, you can remember them and you can cherish their life. But at the same time, it's never going to be the same again. Accepting that is very important, but it's very difficult as well, especially since we had gotten very close near the end of his life. It was all the more devastated when he eventually passed. That, in my moment where I was really low, that's what triggered me to use on that particular day. 
I had ingested uh, a lot more than the normal doses for several different opioids. I don't really remember much, to be honest with you. But what did end up happening was I was very, very ill. And I ended up in a medically induced coma. So it was, it was very close. I was in that for a few days. And then I came to. I think that too often as a society, we label people as junkies or, you know, hedonists. When in reality, a lot of us are trying to numb something or trying to forget about something. This kind of speaks to the importance of trauma and grief in substance abuse. I think it's important to have kind of that sense of community that's going to be not only helping you make those right decisions to keep you on the right track, but also making sure that those same people are going to support you in the event that you do relapse or make a decision that sets you back a little bit. Because 99.999% of the time, that's going to be part of the process. Not that that's a great thing or a negative thing. It's just, you know, it's okay. It's important to have people who aren't going to give up on you the second that you make a misstep because that's just part of the process, and that's okay. Patty is one of tens of thousands of people in the United States who overdose each year. Over 91,000 drug overdose deaths were reported in the United States in 2020 alone, and opioids factored into 74% of those deaths. Fortunately, Patty is able to keep working towards recovery. There is hope to dramatically decrease the number of fatal overdoses in the coming years, and that's thanks in part to a vaccine currently being developed at Boston Children's. That's right, a vaccine that could prevent opioid overdose. But before we talk about a vaccine for opioid overdose, we need to understand the science that will get us there. And that science is precision medicine, specifically precision vaccines. I spoke with Dr. Ofer Levy, the director of the Precision Vaccines Program at Boston Children's. His team is working to create vaccines that are tailored to specific characteristics, such as age or medical history. Dr. Levy and I spoke about the use of adjuvants, which are molecules or substances added to a vaccine that can assist in boosting a person's immune response. Adjuvants also provide efficacy and increase the lifespan of a vaccine in a safe and cost-effective way. Dr. Levy laid out a vision for how precision vaccines could, in the near future, become powerful tools for protecting the most vulnerable among us. Hi, Dr. Levy. Thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Zakia. Can you explain broadly for folks what precision vaccines are? So precision vaccines are vaccines that have been developed taking into account the population who will most benefit from them for both safety and efficacy. Those are always the two parameters clinically, right? So it's a vaccine that's designed from the start to say, who's the target population who would most benefit from this vaccine? What are the unique features of their immune system? Uh, how do we model that outside the body, you know, using white blood cells, uh, blood donations, and test uh, our formulation to make sure it's been optimized for safety and efficacy in that group of individuals? It's also designed to give a precise kind of immune response response that's most protective against the pathogen that you're trying to protect against. Because precision vaccines are giving you both safety and efficacy, when you consider that, what makes them a breakthrough in medicine? 
Well, because traditionally vaccines disregarded people's differences when they were developed. It was a one-size-fits-all approach. But then what you find is you have some individuals who don't respond as well to the vaccine, don't get the protection that you're hoping to get from that vaccine, and that's very inefficient. Or you end up with a vaccine that requires many doses to maintain immunity, and that's not practical, and it's costly, and it's problematic from a public health perspective. So if we can build better vaccines that give single-shot protection, broad protection against a range of variants, etc., that's going to be a huge win for human health. What is often found, especially in special populations like the very young, older adults, immunocompromised, people with chronic conditions, that you need something like an adjuvant to boost an immune response. So, okay, so what are adjuvants and how do they work? The word adjuvant comes from Latin, adjuvar, to help or aid. Adjuvants are booster molecules. They're, they're like rocket fuel for the immune system. They enhance an immune response. And you can add them to a vaccine in situations where you're trying to protect a vulnerable population that doesn't have a very robust immune response, perhaps an, an infant or an older individual or somebody with chronic disease. And just to help people have something to hold on to for what adjuvants could be, are they sugars? Are they? Right, right. They are, they are small molecules that mimic a piece of DNA and or RNA that trick the body into thinking that there's an infection there, that they are kind of biosimilars of a piece of a virus or biosimilar of a piece of a bacterium so that the body's innate receptors, innate immune receptors, the rapid arm of our immune system that we're born with, detect and say, ooh, we're infected. We better have a strong immune response. These adjuvants may convert uh, an otherwise weak immune response to a more powerful one. They may convert an immune response that was very transient to a more durable one so that you don't need so many doses. You can have dose sparing effects so that you can potentially even have single shot protection against a given infection. That's very favorable from a public health perspective, from a practical perspective. That makes total sense. So where does the precision part of precision vaccines come in? We're screening in collaboration with the Harvard Robotic Corps, hundreds of thousands of small molecules against white blood cells from infants, from middle-aged individuals, from elderly individuals. And we identify small molecules that are optimal for activating different types of immune responses in those age groups. And they vary by age group. This is where the precision vaccinology, the precision adjuvantation comes into play. We also look at combination of adjuvants. Sometimes one plus one isn't two. Sometimes one plus one is four. Can we find synergistic combinations mm -hmm. of adjuvants that really get you profound immune activation where we could build a vaccine that would give single shot protection, avoiding scenarios where three, four, five doses are needed before right. we get protection. And so adjuvants are a way to put that back in in a well-defined way and get that added boost so that you get stronger white blood cell activation, longer memory, higher antibody levels, and long-term protection. Wow, that's amazing. What other developments are you excited about? Our intellectual progress in appreciating precision vaccinology, taking into account the target population as an approach. That's a new idea as an approach for vaccine discovery and development. That has us poised into 
a new golden era of faster, safer, and even more effective vaccines. Our ability to model human immune system outside mm -hmm. the body, to vaccinate in a test tube is also a major new development that allows us to benchmark new formulations against older ones that can accelerate and de-risk vaccine development. And then our use of systems biology, big data approaches that measure all the cells and molecules in the body, allow us to quickly identify which pathways are most important to activate to get strong immunogenicity, a correlative protection with a vaccine. So when we put these technologies together, what emerges is a powerful vision of innovation that is focused on public health, that's focused on flexibility, rapid response, and precision against threats, those that exist and those that are yet to come. Even though you may find something in your lab with a small set of samples, you have to collect a lot of data to, to really prove that this is the case across the board. Exactly. So exactly. I'd love to hear from you. You know, how how are you doing that? How are you right. wrangling in so many samples where you feel like, okay, I can say this definitively? <laughs> right, right. So at the moment we have those exciting moments of discovery, the strong instinct of a good scientist is to doubt it. This must have been a mistake. Got to repeat it. Got to repeat it. And it was only after we saw it several times. And, and of course, we then subject the data to statistical analysis and say, whoa, we've got something here. It's really like night and day. We, we found this like golden molecule that can uniquely activate a robust infant immune response. So that was very, very exciting uh, moment for me. And even though you're getting big data from small samples, you need a broad array of samples. So how you're getting different geographic locations and how that allows you to say, Correct. this is, I'm able to get different genetic compositions or I'm able to get Correct. people across age ranges and what happens when you vaccinate in winter. And, fall. and so I think I want people to understand just how huge of an undertaking this is. Right. So our program is composed of 40 individuals on site. We have a large data management and analysis core led by Dr. Joanne Arce. We have a broader precision vaccine network of collaborators, approximately 500 individuals across the globe with whom we do different funded projects. An incredibly diverse group of scientists and physicians from all over the world who are all dedicated to infant health and are working together to develop these projects. And, you know, coming to terms that everybody can agree to, respecting everybody's needs and career interests, it implies a massive administrative and data coordinating effort, which is very substantial beyond what the NIH grants can typically even cover. And so when we consider all of this and we talk about building these better vaccines and realizing the full potential, one of those potentials is not just infectious disease, right? It's vaccination for all types of things. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So uh, as you know, the coronavirus pandemic has worsened the opioid epidemic. And currently we have over a hundred people a day, a day dying in these United States due to opioid overdose. And we have been privileged to be recently funded by NIH on a large scale effort to develop an opioid vaccine. Now, this would not be a vaccine that's given to the general population. It's a vaccine given to individuals with opioid use disorder who are interested in getting past that disorder, but are at risk at a moment of weakness of taking a street drug that might be laced with fentanyl, for example. And so we are working on a fentanyl vaccine that would induce antibodies against fentanyl 
And therefore, if the individual happened to take some fentanyl, it would be bound by the antibody in their blood, would not get into the brain where it suppresses your respiration and can kill you. Now, it turns out that fentanyl is a small molecule, doesn't induce much antibody. So you have to link it to a larger protein to get antibody produced. And even then, the antibody is kind of transient in an animal model. So this is where our expertise with adjuvants, small molecules that boost an immune response, like rocket fuel for the immune system, is very valuable. And in this project, we're collaborating with my wife, Dr. Sharon Levy, also at Boston Children's. She leads the Adolescent Substance Use and Addiction Program, or ASAP. And we are enrolling cohorts of 15 to 25-year-old youth with opioid use disorder. And we're capturing clinical data. And we're also interviewing them to learn their attitudes towards vaccines in general and opioid vaccines in particular. And then we are obtaining blood samples that we can test outside the body to see which adjuvants are best for that age group. And not only that age group, but opioids, it turns out, affect your immune system. And so we found particular molecules were, were effective in activating immune responses in white blood cells from opioid using youth. And those now become our lead molecules to build into a vaccine against opioid overdose death. And we're now moving that into animal models and within the next two years or so into human clinical trial. So that's amazing. It sounds like you're doing behavioral work, attitudinal work, in vitro studies, a lot of things going on there with a vaccine for fentanyl. And when we consider our toolbox, our vaccinology, you know, toolbox, what's your hope for what becomes the new standard? My, my hope is that we invest in some infrastructure here in the United States and across the world. One type of infrastructure we need is infectious disease surveillance to know what infections are out there. And the other infrastructure is the ability to meet the needs for new types of vaccines, whether it's respiratory syncytial virus, which before the pandemic, RSV was the number one cause of infant hospitalization in the United mm -hmm. States, still don't have a vaccine for that. So there are all these unmet needs. And then there are occasional pandemics, as we've noticed. And so we need to invest in the infrastructure to make vaccines in a more precise way, in a more rapid way, rapidly getting to safe, effective, single shot, broad protection including in the vulnerable populations. That would be the vision. It's ambitious, but with the current technologies, it's possible. It does require substantial support. That sounds amazing. I hope we get there very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Levy, this has been great. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Zakia. Dr. Ofer Levy's work on precision vaccines has huge implications for how we think about disease prevention. He and his wife, Dr. Sharon Levy, who is my next guest, are working on a breakthrough innovation in the treatment of drug addiction that builds on the methodology of precision vaccines. Together, they're developing a vaccine to actually block fentanyl from reaching the brain, preventing an overdose. Dr. Sharon Levy is the director of the Adolescent Substance Use and Addiction Program, or ASAP, which identifies, diagnoses, and treats substance use disorders in children and adolescents. Dr. Sharon Levy and I discussed how a fentanyl vaccine could work, who would stand to benefit most from the vaccine, and the importance of developing a treatment plan that includes both counseling and peer support alongside vaccination. Welcome to Breakthrough, Dr. Levy. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yes, I'm really excited to learn more about the opioid vaccine project, because I think when people think of vaccines, they think of infectious disease. And I'd love for you to tell us how a vaccine could become a tool for the prevention of opioid overdose. This 
vaccine is a little bit different. I mean, it actually works very much the same way as the vaccines that people are more familiar with, in that once it's injected into somebody, the idea would be the person would develop antibodies. The antibodies would bind to, in this case, fentanyl. That would prevent it from crossing the material that separates the brain from the rest of the body. So if fentanyl can't cross into the brain, it can't suppress breathing and cause overdose. And so that's the big idea. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's like working on this dynamic team that's pulling this together and to work with, I think, someone you're very close with? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So this project is a a partnership across the hospital. There are actually many people involved, but one of the, the two lead investigators on the project is my husband, Ofer Levy. He's a vaccinologist and a pediatric infectious disease specialist. And he's been working on vaccines and this idea of adjuvants. The other one is a close colleague of his named David Dowling. And he's been working on the components of vaccines to try and understand how do we make vaccines that are right for the population that needs them. The program's called the Precision Vaccine Program. The idea for developing an opioid vaccine actually came from the National Institute of Health. They had put out what we call a request for applications. And to design an opioid prevention vaccine or an opioid overdose prevention vaccine as one of a multi-pronged strategy, right? And so when Ofer and David saw the request, they thought, oh, that this is really something that we could do. And they came and they sat down and spoke with me because they were aware that I know something about addiction. And we started talking about all of these really complex and intertwined issues and all of these things that would have to be sorted out. There was a recognition right up front that it's going to be really important to start talking to the key stakeholders, right? So people who have opioid use disorder, how do they feel about it? What do they think about this? And then other stakeholders anesthesiologists, right? Fentanyl is used for anesthesia when people undergo surgery. Are they really worried about this? Or how do they think about it? All of these different people with different voices, different parts of this puzzle have to come together. And we recognize that for this project, that's going to need to happen right up front. It's really new. Thinking about treating a behavioral disorder with a vaccine is something that most people don't really think about. So there's a lot of explaining that we have to do to to the public. And we don't want people who might get the vaccine to misunderstand what it's for. We don't want them to think that they're protected from all opioid overdose, making sure that we're communicating that people understand what that is to make sure the best that we can, that people understand the real risks as opposed to things that, that probably aren't going to be risks. Interesting. So could you tell me a little bit more about like where you are in development, maybe what you've done so far and what's next? So right now, the main efforts are in figuring out how to formulate the vaccine. So we have to figure out what exactly is going into the vaccine that would be injected into people, right? And that includes what we call the antigen. So that's the part of the vaccine that the antibodies are going to respond to, right? So we want to be sure that that's something that will look like fentanyl. It won't be exactly fentanyl, right? But it'll be close enough that it'll make antibodies that will also bind to fentanyl. There will be some efforts so that it is very specific, so it won't bind to drugs or medications that are similar to fentanyl. The idea is that this particular vaccine will be very specific. And the idea there is that we want to make a vaccine 
that triggers an adequate, sufficient amount of antibodies so that it's protective. And here's something that's really important. This vaccine will primarily be made for people who have opioid use disorder. And it turns out that the exposure to opioids over time actually impacts the immune system in a number of ways. We have to make sure that the vaccine that's developed is going to be effective for the target population and their immune systems may be just a little bit different from other people's immune systems. When you consider people who are uh, frequent users of opioids, I think it's been described as like a reflex for them to continue to seek opioids. How would the vaccine prevent that reflex? I really like the analogy of a reflex when people develop addiction, really what's happened is they've lost control over their own behavior. And substance use, instead of becoming a choice like it is for somebody who's not addicted, it almost becomes a reflex, right? It's like something people do without even really thinking about it. And so that's why addiction is so challenging. Now, this vaccine, it's not being seen as a, a comprehensive treatment in and of itself, right? It's more being seen as a component of treatment. So there are a couple of medications that are used to treat opioid use disorder, and they're extremely effective. Methadone, which most people have heard of, buprenorphine, which is a newer medication that you can get at your doctor's office if you need it, and naltrexone that you can also get at a doctor's office. And this vaccine would be a component of medical treatment, but not the whole thing. So there have been other vaccines that have examined whether antibodies to substances can actually treat addiction, right? That was done with nicotine. It's been done with cocaine. And there have been some promising results, although none of those products are available. With fentanyl, there is a question of whether the vaccine itself, it would prevent people from experiencing the euphoria that's associated with fentanyl use, right? Because if the fentanyl can't cross into the brain, it won't be able to trigger those receptors. I think the main reason for developing this vaccine is to prevent overdose. So we would hope that this would not deter people from getting other forms of treatment, which include counseling and support, right, to work on issues like, for example, figuring out how to deal with cravings, figuring out how to rewire the brain, get rid of that reflex to use substances, to support people who may have depression or anxiety or other problems that frequently go along with substance use disorders. And in addition, we would also encourage them to get peer support. And peer support is really important in helping people learn or relearn to safely navigate their communities. So it's those pieces, when we put them all together, that's kind of the magic spot. And the vaccine here would be an added protection. So that makes me ask, you know, what does an ideal treatment look like? When we think about vaccines and we think about vaccines that children normally take, there's a vaccine schedule. Some of them have, you know, you receive one dose, then you have a booster. Do you imagine a regimen for this type of vaccine? We're still in the development phase. So I think it's possible that using the right components in the test tube, we'll be able to make a vaccine that lasts six months, 12 months, a year, five years. I think it'll depend on what we find when looking at what we can produce in the test tube. And I think it's likely that we'll be able to adjust how long the vaccine works by adjusting what goes into it. And then we're going to have some design decisions to make. So you can imagine that there's a real benefit to a one and done vaccine, right? And there's a real 
convenience to that. And you don't have to worry about people having vaccines that will wane over time. And at the same time, there may be benefits to having vaccines that act a shorter amount of time, like one year or a couple of years, and then are no longer effective. And it gets back to this idea that that fentanyl is also a medication. So if you're a young person and you're getting this vaccine, you may want a vaccine that will wear off in a couple of years, right? So that later in your life, if you develop a condition like cancer, where the best treatment is going to be fentanyl, you would still have access to it. It's important to note that, you know, the system is really designed right now to use fentanyl, right? And so it's certainly possible to choose another medication, but unless the anesthesiologist knows in advance that somebody might be vaccinated, for example, an emergency situation, right? It's possible that the medical responders, it's likely they wouldn't know that somebody's been vaccinated, right? Ambulances are stocked with fentanyl. They're not stocked necessarily with the alternatives. I think these are all decisions that have to be made with the people who might be using these vaccines with serious input from them. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about how this vaccine could be useful for teenagers, even if someone may think, oh, you know, my teenager isn't an addict. Like, how, how could this type of vaccine help them? I am a pediatric addiction medicine specialist, so I like to think about, well, where else could this be useful? And unfortunately, in the past couple of years, I've seen a number of kids, adolescents, young adults who have overdosed who didn't have an opioid use disorder, right? And these were people who were what we would call sporadic users, many of whom were exposed through pills that they thought were something else. And lo and behold, there was fentanyl in the pill that they bought. And so they ended up overdosing. A vaccine could help somebody like that. Now, who do you give it to? How do you decide who could most benefit? There are always pros and cons. And so how do you weigh these things out? And where do you draw the line? It's not the kind of vaccine that we would be giving to all kids at their 12-year checkup, right? Is there room to give it to people who maybe have a substance use disorder, who are using substances in risky ways, even if they don't have opioid addiction? I think that remains an open question and something that our team is really grappling with by speaking with stakeholders, including patients who have opioid use disorders, young people who have opioid use disorders, young people who don't have opioid use disorders, some of whom have overdosed nonetheless, parents, other physicians, pain medication specialists, the community, right? There, There's really room for a lot of voices in developing this. And this makes me think about what is the, the sentiment of, around this type of vaccine? Do you feel like there's excitement or if there is hesitancy or what is it usually around? One of the beautiful things about this project is really how collaborative and multidisciplinary it is. And so one of our colleagues named Elisa Weitzman is leading this part of the project. And she's really done the hard work of sitting down and interviewing all of these folks. And I think that there is real concern about the trade-off of protecting people against fentanyl overdose and at the same time losing fentanyl as a potential medication. Lots of people very understandably have worries about that, especially in younger people, because you really don't know what life is going to bring right yeah. over time. All of this is really important in thinking through how we might use this, what the downstream effects might be, what the unintended consequences might be, and really making sure that we're, you know, first do no harm, right, with any of these interventions. 
This has been so informative. Thanks for your time today, Dr. Levy. Thank you very much. Dr. Sharon Levy's extensive experience with adolescent addiction points the way toward a future where clinicians and researchers can work together to potentially address a wide range of diseases with vaccines. Could we one day have vaccines that target specific individual health issues or vaccines that are custom crafted with components designed for each person on the planet? It's too early to say, but the work of Dr. Levy and Dr. Levy is bringing us closer to that future becoming a reality. Someone who's taken such a vaccine would be able to avoid that overdose. And I hope that the vaccine like this is the first step in that process. Thanks for listening. Breakthrough is a production of Boston Children's. On our next episode, we'll talk to two doctors, Dr. Alareza Shamshirsaz and Dr. Darren Orbach, both specializing in in utero interventions. Our team had the benefit of all of this wisdom that they developed over these last two decades and all the knowledge of how to safely do a procedure on a fetus in a safe way. I'm pretty sure in the next five, 10 years, in the field of fetal surgery, we'll talk about many, many other things that we never thought about. These two doctors are at the forefront of treating illness before it happens, as in prior to birth. Listen next time to find out how their work could change the way we think about treating diseases. If you enjoyed this episode of Breakthrough, please follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps. See you next time.